Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you were 21 in 1972 and a woman, there's a pretty good chance you were having, or you'd already had, your first child. But things have changed. The changes of the 50s, 60s, and 70s in terms of delayed family formation were really remarkable. Caitlin Knowles-Myers is an economist at Middlebury College who studies, among other things, women's fertility. And they're correlated with women uh, obtaining more education than ever before in entering the labor force in large numbers and entering occupations that they were never in before. And that's had a tremendous impact on uh, women's economic opportunity and also on, on families and total income. You could say that Knowles-Myers analyzes data that reveals the state of the American family. And that state is older and smaller. The average age of first-time moms has surged from 21 in the early 1970s to 26 now. And the average age of first-time dads has gone from 27 to 31. Meanwhile, the birth rate has plummeted to a record low. In fact, it's so low that the U.S. would be on track to lose population, except for the immigrants that we have coming in every year to fill the gap. And the reinvention of the family unit, it's not just a story about women. It's a story about technology, economics, and modern concerns. Claire Kane Miller is a correspondent for The New York Times who has written extensively about what's behind this cultural shift. Now, I did talk to young men about the choices that they were making. One thing that came up a lot with the generation um, of childbearing age right now is financial concerns, a lot of insecurity about college loans and about the price of homes and about the price of college and whether they could actually afford to support a family in this um, current economy. Apparently, a lot of couples are deciding that having fewer kids or no kids at all is the right decision for them. Birth rates among women in their 20s are dropping. So are birth rates among women in their 30s. Only women 40 to 44 are having more babies each year. And part of the reason behind all these decisions is technology. The last few decades have brought us in vitro fertilization, which often expands how long women can have children, as well as new kinds of birth control and options around abortion. So I think one of the big themes of the late 60s and early 70s is the liberalization of abortion policy, which allowed women who did not wish to become mothers yet or do not wish to have another birth to terminate a pregnancy. Caitlin Knowles-Myers, the economist, notes that teen pregnancies and marriages shortly followed by a birth declined precipitously after abortion became widely available. And birth rates overall, including teen pregnancy, has come down even more in the last decade, perhaps because of another sort of technology. What's interesting is that it's pretty difficult to disentangle the effect of the recession on fertility from the other things that have been happening contemporaneously. So, for instance, the recession also coincides with the uh, introduction of the smartphone and the expansion of social media. And that also has affected fertility. Well, there's a theory that that's also f affected fertility for teens. For instance, that social media access to smartphones both expands their ability to obtain information about contraception uh, and perhaps abortion also. But also there's a theory that it is an alternative to sexual activity. Put it bluntly, there's the thought that perhaps teens are spending more time on Snapchat than they are uh, having sex and that that might be contributing to the decline in, in teen births. So what is happening to the American family? What does this shift tell us about women's lives, men's lives, and how society is changing? 
In many ways, we're just catching up to other industrialized countries like France and Japan, where birth rates have been falling for a long time. But the averages also obscure a split in America, Knowles Myers says, and a reality that the new ways we think about family in this country are, like lots of other hot topics, really polarized. I think that that divide is very much about the choices that that women have. So right now, the average age of a first-time mother who has a college education is 30, and the average age of a first-time mother who doesn't have a college education is about 24. So they're quite different. Now, I should point out that some of those first-time mothers without a college degree will eventually get one. It's not as though some of them, you know, don't proceed with their education. But there's there's a big gap there. And I think one of the interesting questions in social science is to to what extent does the age at which women are choosing to become mothers then affect their education and their career outcomes? To what effect does it drive that? And to what effect does it just reflect the choices that they that they have? For a young woman who doesn't anticipate that she's going to have access to a college education and doesn't anticipate continuing her education or pursuing certain careers, it may make a lot of sense to her to go ahead and have a child at a younger age. So in that sense, age at first birth can be as much a, a marker of inequality in our society as it is a cause. Hmm. Um. Claire Kane Miller from The New York Times, I wonder what you see when you have talked to real people um, kind of like reflecting this divide. Uh, And uh, a quote from one of your articles really jumped out at me. It's from the interim chair of maternal fetal medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. And what she said is, it feels like no one here has babies under 35 anymore. And I just thought that was so indicative of, uh, you know, what we've been talking about. It's exactly true. I think in San Francisco area, the average age is something like 32. And, and, you know, most of the women that she's seen at UCSF are 35 or older. And a lot of it is, like what Caitlin said, the issue of education. People who are living in big urban cities are probably more likely to have degrees, to have high-paying jobs, to have taken this time to build their careers and, and get their education. It also has to do with, you know, cultural mores. If you look around and everyone around you is waiting until they're 35 to start having children, you might do the same. You might be more likely to do the same. If you look around and everyone around you is having children very early, perhaps foregoing college, if there, you know, is a strong um, cultural opposition to abortion or to certain kinds of contraception, then you might start your family earlier. So, you know, people are more likely to live around people like them now. The United States is, you know, very much um, a country of bubbles right now. And so people look around them, see what other people are doing like them, and that probably influences their choices too. Claire, uh, uh, talk a little bit about how uh, cultural norms uh, affect fertility because one of the other gap we we've talked about the gap in uh, between people who are college educated and not people who are college educated tend to wait a lot longer to have their first kid, but there's also a gap between uh, women who are married and women who are not and when they have their first child. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and sort of the cultural things going on there? Sure. People who have babies at young ages in their early 20s are much more likely to be unmarried, and um, the pregnancies are also much more likely to be 
unplanned. So, of course, this influences how the child grows up in terms of whether there are two parents around, whether there was, you know, savings and things like that started in the way that you might for a planned pregnancy um, versus an unplanned one. I think the biggest cultural difference is around gender norms. So people in general, of course, this is a generalization and isn't true for everybody, but in places where where women start families young, there tend to be more traditional ideas about gender norms. There tends to be less acceptance of abortion and also more acceptance of the idea of women as caretakers and homemakers and men as breadwinners. In places where women are having babies later and where they're more educated, there also tends to be um, more liberal ideas about gender norms, which is to say um, more of a belief that men and women should share responsibilities in the home and family and then earning money. And then these things are perpetuated, right? Because if you wait until you have a graduate degree and a career to have a baby, it's probably more likely you're going to go back to work and, you know, continue to be a breadwinner for the family, which necessitates sharing more of the home tasks. If you um, don't have a degree and you start a family early, you're probably going to have um, more of the childcare responsibility. So that's the cultural norm that I find to be the most interesting here. And it seems, too, that there's a kind of political overlay to that, a kind of red-blue divide as well, to some degree, going on with what you're describing. There is. And there's um, two law professors have written a book about this in which they did sort of describe that as red and blue America. um, And the single biggest difference that they focused on was the age of first birth. Now, as Caitlin will tell you, it's not it's not exactly that. There are much of red America um, where people are waiting to have children. It's really... um, more about education, but geography geography does play a role. It's the big cities um, and coastal areas and more liberal areas where people are also more likely to have degrees and to be married and to wait to have children. And, you know, the the fact that people in America are delaying marriage overall, they're getting married married later and they're getting married less. But the people who are continuing to get married and to divorce less are the more educated and more privileged people. It's become almost a mark of privilege to be married and to start a family with two parents in some ways. Um, And part of this is that people are just waiting to start adulthood until they feel financially secure. And they're not marrying until they feel financially secure. And so often this means having a baby before you get married if you're not at that place yet where you feel financially secure enough to get married, but you might still decide to have your baby. Hmm. Caitlin, do you see a political overlay to this? Or when you look at the data, do you think, no, you know, it's more complicated than that? Yeah, I really agree with with Claire's take on it. It's certainly if if you want to look at a red blue map of the politics of the United States and you want to overlay that with a map of age at first birth, you're going to see a pretty strong correlation. But I think that the underlying factors there are variation in education and in how urban an area is. And so I think that those are really important explanatory variables. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Caitlin Knowles-Myers, a professor at Middlebury College, and Claire Kane miller a correspondent for The New York Times. We're talking about how American families are changing. Claire, when you talk to women who are delaying having kids or, you know, who have kids but, but delayed it, do you get the sense that they're mostly doing that because they want to get higher up in their careers and have more money? And I also wonder, do they think they were right? To, to make to do that delay, I expected to hear more women saying that they wanted to get higher up in their careers. You know, we're very aware that when you become a mother, that's when the pay gap, the gender pay gap, starts. You know, you have the the mommy penalty at work. Instead, I heard much, much more from women who were delaying that it was one of two things: either it was feeling like they couldn't afford kids, not because of where they were in their career, but because of things like their student loans and um, the price of homes in the neighborhoods where they would want to raise kids and the price of college. And the other thing I heard was just wanting more control over their time, feeling like they wanted to do things like travel or pursue hobbies or pursue, you know, second careers, and that they finally had a choice to do those things instead of having children. In terms of the people who waited, I've heard mixed things. Fertility starts declining pretty rapidly in your 30s, as we all know. And I heard from plenty of women who said, oh, I thought I could wait till 35. All my friends were doing it. I see it all the time. And then I couldn't get pregnant. And it was so difficult because I had to invest in all these you know, fertility treatments, and it's expensive. And takes a lot of time. And so, you know, there are those concerns for sure. On the other hand, um, women who've waited feel that it's much easier to go back to their careers after a maternity leave and having children because they've achieved a point at their careers in which they have a lot of respect and seniority and a lot of passion for their job. Um, And so they feel it's easier than if they had you know, left their career earlier to have a child and tried to return. Um, So it's kind of a mix. How have you found that technology factors into this? You kind of alluded to it. You know, the rise in IVF, the rise in people, in women freezing their eggs. I mean, these were not things that, you know, in 1972, I think people were talking about much. But like when we talk about, wow, it's women over 40 whose birth rate is on the increase and everybody else's the birth rate is on the decrease. What's the role of technology? There are, of course, a lot of medical advances, not just in terms of getting pregnant, freezing your eggs, or getting fertility treatments, but also in terms of genetic testing. Of course, one of the reasons that doctors warned women about waiting to get pregnant besides that they might not get pregnant is that there's a higher risk of birth defects when parents are older. And doctors said to me in interviews that because of genetic testing from really early on, you know, at six weeks now, even before, even, you know, if you're doing IVF, you can test embryos before before they're implanted to see if if those are issues that it really has empowered women to feel more comfortable waiting. On the other hand, we need to remember these things are so expensive. Health insurance does not cover them to a large degree. Sometimes employers do, but that's if you work at um, a very, you know, privileged employer. And so this is a certain group of women for this who this 
even matters, and it's a small group. One of the things that was interesting I found in the poll that we did was that 1% of women had said that they had frozen their eggs or had started the process of freezing their eggs. 50% said they wished they could. That is a huge difference, and the reason was entirely because of the cost. It's just incredibly prohibitively expensive for a lot of women, and as a lot of OBs will warn you, it is not um, a guarantee that you actually will get pregnant. Um, Caitlin, did you want to get in here? Yeah. So I think that that's that's fascinating, particularly that very large fraction of women who say that they they wish they could freeze their eggs. I think the other piece of technology that you don't want to leave out is the expanded access to contraception and mm-hmm. particularly long-acting reversible contraception, which is IUDs and implants. They are still far from the most popular methods of reversible contraception, but they're gaining in popularity and their efficacy is much higher than more traditional reversible methods like the pill and condoms because there's a pretty big user error factor in the use of pill and condoms versus almost none in the use of IUDs and implants. And the increased use of those methods also is going to play a role in decreasing unintended pregnancies, which still account for almost half of all pregnancies. Um, you mentioned before the advent of legalized abortion and like how much that decreased teen pregnancy as well as uh, marriages amongst very young people. Do we have a sense of how overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, which certainly seems possible at this point, um, how that might impact fertility? Do you think birth rates would start to go up again? I do, but I don't think it would be the opposite side of the same coin. A lot has changed since 1973. In particular, women have access to better contraceptive technology. And I also think that the market for illegal abortions would look very different. It's no longer the age of the coat hanger, thank God. I suspect that if Roe were to be overturned, that abortion would remain legal in quite a few states. There are people who've estimated this, but probably around 17 states at least would um, still have legal access to abortion. And women who had the means would probably travel to those states in pretty large numbers. That, of course, is legal. And then on the on kind of the black market side, uh, in other countries where abortion is not legal, there often is a, a black market in the drugs that can be used to induce abortions. And I think that that's a similar market would potentially develop in the United States. There's anecdotal evidence that that, in fact, is what happened uh, in some areas of Texas after there was a dramatic decline in the number of abortion clinics in that state in 2016. Hmm. As you've both followed this, um, Claire, we can start with you. Um, do you think it's a good thing that that women are having kids later? As you've sort of watched all this data accumulate, how does it strike you? I can't judge whether it's a good thing. I think it's a very personal decision. But one thing that really struck me is that there were really pros and cons to both choices. The women who I interviewed who started their families late. They had more money. They had a more successful career. They were able to provide their children with um, a lot more things that take financial resources. On the other hand, they struggled with fertility. They were more likely to have fewer children than they had hoped. They're more likely to live far from extended family, either because their you know, parents were too elderly or because they had moved to big urban centers to pursue their careers far from their parents. Um, and then the people who I interviewed who started families early, 
They were more likely to be single, to not have the support of a father. The, the pregnancies were more likely to be unplanned. They had less money to invest in their children. On the other hand, they talked about having a lot more energy to play with their children, that they were appreciated that they were still going to be young when their children were older. Their physical health might have been better in terms of um, fertility and other things because of their youth. And they were also more likely to live in areas that really valued family ties, that really valued you know, big extended families, being near each other, continuing your family as a source of meaning in your community. So I really see pros and and cons um, for both. Caitlin, what do you think? Do you think it's a good thing that women are waiting till later to have kids? Um, economists are are, are fairly disposed <laughs> to not passing this sort of, this sort of judgment. I, I tend not to go for good or bad, but simply trying to understand the choice. But I, I really do think that if I can take off my economist hat for a mm -hmm. moment, that it's a good idea to get away from a moral judgment about the age at which it is right for a woman to have a child. It is an extremely complex and personal decision. And there are young mothers who have made a choice to be young mothers that's a, a perfectly good choice for them and with which they're happy. I think what I would like to see is simply a situation where women are becoming mothers because they intend to and they wish to. And at whatever age they intend and wish to become mothers, I am personally okay with it. Caitlin Knowles-Myers is an economist at Middlebury College. She has analyzed the data on women's fertility. And Claire Kane-Miller is a correspondent for The New York Times. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. more about some of the data that we've talked about, we've got it for you at our website, along with some great work by the New York Times that allows you to look at the average age of first birth for your county. That's all at innovationhub.org. weeks ago on Innovation Hub, we looked at how technology has affected the jobs of Americans across the country. For some, as we heard, the fallout has been disastrous. They know that they are increasingly disposable. They feel that in their bones. But for others who work on developing new technologies, there's a sense that this sort of change is inevitable. It brings new opportunities, and yes, it does close off others. And they argue that's been true for thousands of years. This time that we're hearkening back to doesn't exist. And so the question isn't, oh, we've rushed into it. The world has already gone there. We wanted to know, what has your experience been with tech at work? Good? Bad? Clarence Coggins, who drives for ride-sharing services and has a taxi in Jersey City, New Jersey, says that technology has provided him freedom, freedom to set his own schedule and design his day. You have to work. All right, but I get to set when I want to work. I can work either late at night, I can work early in the morning. I've basically been free to operate within a 24-7 parameter, whereas when you work a regular 9-to-5 type of job, you're provided the operation time that your employer does. Kathy Weaver and X-Ray Tech agreed that technology has helped her at work, but in a different way. She wrote... Technology made my job faster, easier, and more productive. Switching from film to digital made it cheaper and far more efficient. But not everyone was so thrilled about how tech has changed their lives. 
Jeff Cook told us that as someone who had been a successful typesetter, quote, desktop publishing ruined my career, period. And Lynn Weinstein, a pharmacist, noted that since she stands five feet tall, quote, automation has made many jobs almost inaccessible to me because it's too hard for me to spend seven hours a day reaching far enough across the counter to get to the bins containing a patient's order that are sent to us on a conveyor belt. I'm not the only one who ends up with a terrible backache and strained shoulders. Remember, you can always let us know what you're thinking about jobs or tech or anything else. Just email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org.